And today we're concluding our series uh, that we've been doing for the past several weeks, exploring what it means to live a good life. We've explored that how a good life means having a good mind, a good community, a good cause. Finally today, we look at how a good life means having a good practice, or even better yet, good practices. To do this, we will take a look at the beginning of the story of Job. Uh, Some of you know Job is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, but it's also one of the most feared and um, misunderstood stories as well. I think it's because it gets to the core of human experience in a way few other stories, um, or perhaps no other story, really can. At first glance, Job and its tragedy and peril may not seem like a place we want to turn when thinking about a good life. I mean, You wouldn't wish Job's tragedies on anyone. But as I hope our reading and reflection will show, there is much we can learn from Job on what it means to live a good life. I invite you to listen with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the first chapter of Job, beginning with the very first verse. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in turn. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So friends, now we're in October with Halloween in just a few short weeks, and now we've officially arrived in the month of scary movies. I'm not a huge horror movie person, to be honest, but I do enjoy one from time to time, especially if zombies are involved. (laughs) Now, something that seems to be a hallmark of scary movies, especially the older ones, is the idyllic setting in which the story takes place. A pleasant small town, a summer camp, out in the beautiful wilderness. Maybe they even throw in some nostalgia for good measure. This sets the audience at ease initially, making us all think, hey, nothing can go wrong here, right? But soon enough, it'll all unravel, leaving our main cast of characters on a path of survival. Our reading this morning is the idyllic beginning of the story of Job. A story that sounds too good to be true, right? I mean, this guy was perfect. He was blameless, he worshipped God, he was blessed with lots of children, a boatload of animals, uh, lots of land, and a staff so large he was considered one of the wealthiest people in the region. He was so faithful and devout that he would even make burnt offerings on behalf of his children, praying on their behalf, just in case they happened to sin and didn't realize it. This guy was too good to be true, right? It's important to note that by and large, scholars can't agree on where this land of us happened to be. 
Um, it, it makes it feel like more of a mystical place than an actual historical setting. An interesting fact, when The Wizard of Oz, the, the famous movie, was, was uh, translated in, into Hebrew for people in Israel and beyond, the wonderful city of Oz became the city of Uz. I share this to say that the story of Job has an idyllic fairy tale-like beginning. And this makes Job more of an everyman than a real person. And I'm willing to guess that each of us can name several people in your life, or perhaps even you yourself, who have walked in Job's footsteps at one point or another. Just, so, uh, just like so many scary movies, this idyllic fairy tale beginning will soon take a quick turn. Due to the work of the adversary, Job will lose all of his stuff. His crops, his livestock are destroyed, his children killed. Then to add insult to injury, quite literally, Job becomes infected with painful, itchy sores all over his body. And we're left with an image of him retreating to an ash heap, which was literally the town dump, using a piece of broken pottery to scratch his wounds. If his idyllic beginning had a fairy tale-like feel, his downfall feels more like a tragic, dark comedy. Both of these, the, the idyllic beginning and the tragic comedy, are caricatures. They're exaggerations, commonly used in folklore, in old folk tales. Now, to be clear, friends, Job isn't a scary movie, nor is it a historical account of a man who loses everything, and because he keeps his faith in God, has all of his fortunes restored. Though the latter is unfortunately how the story is often told and understood. It seems folklore is the best way to describe Job's saga. It gives it that mythical feel. And folklore in every culture and throughout history has always sought to do one thing, to instill a lesson in those who hear the story. So what is this lesson? There are a number that we might draw from the book of Job, but I think there's one that cries out to us in particular right now. That's part, a vital part of living a good life. If you recall, our reading shows Job's over-the-top faith. Remember, this guy's too good to be true, right? Blameless Job trusted in God for everything. He worshipped and prayed daily, even confessing on behalf of his children, you know, just to be safe. We learn throughout the book that he also extended a hand to the poor. What we see is that Job's intentional faith practices provide him a firm foundation. A firm foundation that allowed him to continue to trust in God's faithfulness. To trust in who he knew God to be in his very core. To seek God out even when everything else around him fell apart. It was his practice faith practices that grounded him in this, in this uh, faith, that grounded him in his understanding of who God is and who he knew God to be. It's practice. Now, a couple years ago, I decided to get back into playing tennis, something I loved to do as a kid, and after taking several years off, I thought I needed to do just a, a quick tune-up lesson to see what I needed to work on. So I took a short lesson with the pro over at Chestnut Forks, and 
while a little rusty, my game felt okay. Not great, but okay. That is except for my backhand. It just didn't feel right. One shot would barely make it to the net, and the next one would go sailing over the, over the backdrop. The, the teaching pro instructed me to loosen up. I needed to loosen up. I needed to uh, let my left hand lead the shot. So he gave me a drill, a practice to work on it. He said, put your right hand, my dominant hand, behind your back. Then he said, hit the next 10 balls with just your left hand. Then after that, he said, hit five more with one finger of your right hand on the racket. Did that, then two fingers, and then so on and so on. And by the end of the, of the drill, my backhand wasn't Rafa Nadal's by any means, but it was, it was back in decent shape. I remember this drill and practice every time today even that my backhand falls apart. It's something that stays in my head. It allows me to adjust and improve in, in uh, playing. It's, it's a good practice that was instilled in me. Job shows us, friends, that a good practice, or rather good practices of faith, are vital to a good life. Like my backhand drill or a golfer trying to fix a wicked slice, Good practices help us reframe and adjust when everything else falls apart. Over time, good practices can even become part of who we are. In his book, Outliers, uh, writer Malcolm Gladwell argues how it takes 10,000 hours of practicing something in order to master it and for it to be so rooted to who you are that you can do it effortlessly. From the Beatles... To Bill Gates, Gladwell shows how the giants of our world mastered their craft, not just by sheer talent, although that certainly doesn't hurt either, but through intentional, focused practice. Now, I'm guessing to say, friends, that it's fair to say Job got his 10,000 hours of practice with, with these faith practices. And these 10,000 hours plus grounded him when everything else around him fell apart. He was still able to trust in God's goodness. He was still able to seek God out in the midst of the chaos and storms around him because these practices, the seeking God out in prayer, in, in service, and in study, he sought these out and they were so rooted to who he was. They grounded him in his understanding of who God is and who he is as a child of God. It begs the question, friends, of what practices in the Christian life today can help us create this vital faith foundation that Job shows us. A foundation that can help us seek out God and know in our core who God is in the storms of life. Now, we may not need to make burnt offerings for ourselves or for those around us just to be safe, but there are practices that help ground us in faith and trust in God's goodness and love no matter what. The first of these, friends, is worship. We're doing that right now, all together right here. This certainly takes a, a corporate uh, sense of worship as we all gather together and sing and pray and surround one another in faith and fellowship as we give thanks and praise to God. But worship also takes a personal tone as well. In our own daily prayer life, when we seek God out throughout our days, not just on Sunday mornings. This gets us closer to that 10,000 hours. 
It gives us a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship with God that we can turn to and find our footing in when things fall apart. Along with worship would certainly be study. And studying scripture and studying uh, Christian writers, history, tradition, learning our, our faith and its tradition, learning what we're really saying when we, when we seek out God and faith and life, what God's word tells us about who we are and who God is for us. Study, too, is, is one of these practices that ground us in who God is and God's goodness and love for us. But worship and study also give way to um, outward-focused uh, works of service and giving. When we serve our, our neighbors and our community and world around us, when we give of ourselves and our resources, it gets us out of our own bubble and it reframes who we are and who we are connected to, to God and each other, as fellow children of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, these practices ground us in who God is and who we are as children of God. Now, it's really a rare and joyous day in a church when you get to celebrate both sacraments, isn't it? And as I was thinking about this week and, and thinking about this sermon, I kept going back to how our sacraments remind us of these good practices. And when we celebrate them together as a family of faith, our good practices they remind us of who God is and who we are as God's children. In baptism, we're remember, we remember that we have been cleansed and claimed and called a child of God. We're told that, we're belong, that we belong, that we are loved and we are beloved. And it instills in us this practice and this faith that gets us to seek others out and tell them they too belong and are welcome. 